welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. Well, today we're going to deviate a little bit from our usual format because I'm going to try to summarize what's happening in the military sphere with regards to the Ukraine. Previous projections that the Russians would simply bowl over the Ukrainian military have been proven to be incorrect. In fact, it's going to a stalemate right now with the heroic Ukrainian fighters tit for tat, bringing the gigantic Russian military to its knees. And so we'll say a few things about that. First of all, I've had some experience with the military. I spent two years in the United States infantry at the height of the Vietnam War. Fortunately, I never was stationed in Vietnam because the war was winding down. However, I've had the privilege of firing almost the entire arsenal of the United States uh, military, starting with the M16 rifle, going all the way up to anti-tank weapons and artillery. So I'll give you at least my two cents worth as to what's happening on the ground in the Ukraine. And then I'll say a few things about nuclear war, specifically CBR warfare, chemical, biological, radiological warfare. And I'll say a few things about what's happening in that sphere, given the fact that tactical nuclear weapons, well, there's no regulation, there's no treaty that puts a ceiling or the types or the duration or the power of these tactical nuclear weapons. And already on several occasions, Vladimir Putin and his aides have mentioned that, yes, they reserve the right to use nuclear weapons on the battlefield. Not just that, but hypersonic weapons have also been used in that conflict. And what is a hypersonic weapon? And for that matter, when you talk about CBR warfare, what do the treaties say? What does the Chemical Warfare Convention say about the use of chemical weapons on the battlefield? And so these are just some of the topics we'll be talking about on exploration today as we talk about science and warfare. Well, as I mentioned, I spent two years in the United States Infantry at the height of the Vietnam War, stationed in Fort Benning, Georgia, and Fort Lewis, Washington. And it was drilled into me several important features of the infantry in warfare. First, the chain of command. The chain of command is the most important vital link. It's the way in which forces are deployed. If the chain of command breaks, then your whole line of offense and defense go out the window. So what's happening with regards to the Russian chain of command? Well, if you can believe the press releases, six top Russian generals have been killed in a conflict with the Ukrainian forces. This is unheard of. Six top generals, if you can believe the reports. That means that the Russian bear is essentially headless and flailing about. Without a centralized overall command, we're talking about the bear flailing about, shooting artillery shells into populated areas, a headless bear. And then the question is, who is in charge? Well, we don't know. Some people are saying that maybe certain battalions are working on their own, that there is no one at the top guiding all the 
people that are dying in the fields. Well, we'll say a few things about that in a future exploration. And the question is, who actually is in charge? Now, then let's talk about the chain of command at the bottom. And that is the conscripts. It turns out that the Russian military is more dependent on conscripts than previously thought. That means there's a missing link in the chain of command, not just at the general's level, but at the NCO level, non-commissioned officers, the sergeants. You know, when I was in the military, it was the sergeants who barked the orders. It was the sergeants who gave you guidance. It was the sergeants who said, do this, do this. And of course, yeah, the second lieutenant was there. He was receiving messages from headquarters, but the messages were conveyed to the troops via the sergeants. The sergeants are the glue that held the chain of command together. And where are they? Well, we find very little evidence of the NCOs inside the Russian military. In other words, the Russian military got overconfident. They thought that a bunch of conscripts would be able to overwhelm the Ukrainian military. And for that matter, they probably thought that the conscripts would be hailed, hailed as liberators by the Ukrainian population, and that's not what happened. And so we have a huge missing link. The NCOs, the sergeants who actually do the bulk of the guidance, carrying out the orders from top and ordering people at the bottom. So we had this headless bear flailing about. Second, when I was in the United States Infantry, we learned that once the chain of command, of course, is intact, then it's logistics. How you get the material, the food, the communications, the weapons to the people in the field. Well, that's another problem for the Russian military. First of all, a lot of the Russian military is stuck in the mud. That's right. It's cold there and it's a rainy season in the Ukraine. And a lot of the tanks, a lot of the tanks you see on the evening news are stuck in the mud. And they are therefore sitting ducks, sitting ducks for anti-tank weapons. Now, I had a chance to actually see these anti-tank weapons up close. I put one on my shoulder and looking through the scope, you can see how relatively easy it is to knock out a tank. A tank looks like it's invulnerable, but there are weak spots in the tank that that I saw looking through the scope of an anti-tank weapon. First of all, there's the joint between the turret and the body of the tank itself. You hit that sweet spot and, that, and the turret is blown off. Second, you can knock off the treads and therefore the tank becomes unusable. Third, if the tank is going up a hill, the underside of the tank is temporarily exposed and that is the ultimate sweet spot, hitting a tank underneath the treads, and then you can blow the entire tank to bits and everything inside. And that, of course, is exactly what the Ukrainian forces are doing. They're masters of the small-scale maneuvering techniques where you shoot and run, shoot and run, and that's what the Ukrainian military is doing, given the fact that they are outgunned, outmanned, and just by looking at the numbers, you would assume that the Russian military would be able to bowl over the Ukrainian military. Nope. The Russian military is without much of a chain of command. 
Logistically, it's stuck in the mud. It's running out of food, supplies, materiel, weapons. And basically, the Russian infantry is paralyzed. Paralyzed as a consequence. They cannot take Kiev as a consequence of the fact they have bad logistics. Third is troop morale. That's very important because it's the grunts. It's the troops who are going to go into an area. And they were apparently told that they would be treated as liberators. Some of the Russians that have been captured said that they were told that this is a military exercise. No one's going to shoot at them because this is a practice mission. And once you arrive in the Ukraine, you'll be hailed as a liberator. Boy, were these conscripts in for a surprise. They begin to realize that the Ukrainians were fighting on home turf. This is where they live. This is their home turf. They know every nook and cranny of the geometry of the area. And that was a shock, a shock to the conscripts who are doing the bulk of the work. Because the Ukrainians are highly motivated. They are fighting on the home turf. They realize that they are outgunned, outmanned, out almost in any category except spirit. And they have a chain of command. They have the logistics in place. And they have troop morale. Next, number four, is weaponry. The Russian military pretty much thought that it had overwhelming military firepower. And therefore, they didn't have to worry too much about taking the entire country. Boy, were they wrong. As a consequence, like a headless bear, they're just firing indiscriminately into cities. They don't really care where they hit in the cities. So it's a question that the military, the state of mind of the generals and Vladimir Putin was different than what everyone thought. So now let's say a few things about speculation. Who knows what's in the minds of Vladimir Putin? Who knows what the generals are plotting right now? But judging from what we know from intercepts, from spies, and from their own public statements, we can sort of get a feeling for their mindset. Their mindset is, first of all, they thought, they really thought, the Russians really thought they would be welcomed as liberators. It would be a piece of cake walking in. And if there was resistance, the resistance could be pulverized. Look at what happened in Chechnya. Who prevailed? The Russians. Why? They pulverized Chechnyan cities. What happened in Syria? They pulverized the Syrian opposition, just slaughtered them wherever they could. What happened in Georgia? What happened in Crimea? The same thing. In other words, the Russian military was drunk, drunk with successes. They succeeded in Chechnya. They succeeded in Syria. They succeeded in Georgia. They succeeded in the Crimea. In other words, they were invincible. And that is the mindset of the leadership of the Russian military. They had a string of successes. Nobody, nobody could come up against the Russian bear. And they thought, therefore, that Georgia would be a piece of cake. But you see, there's a difference here. There was no organized modern military to oppose the Russian military in Chechnya, in Georgia, in Syria, 
in the Ukraine. They did not have much of an adversary. There was no modern military to take them out. And that was a big mistake. So in other words, there was a certain amount of self-delusion. They thought they were invulnerable. They thought they had overwhelming firepower. They thought it would be a piece of cake. And not only that, but now let's take a look at the mindset of Vladimir Putin. All of that, of course, is speculative. Who knows for sure what he's really thinking other than he himself. But by looking at his speeches and by looking at press releases and statements, you can sort of piece together probably what's going on in his mind. What's going on in his mind is that he wants to recreate the Russia of Peter the Great, Russia of Lenin. He wants to create a new, a new invincible Russian empire to compensate for the fact that the Soviet Union fell apart. That, he thinks, is his mission. It's almost a messianic mission. It's a mission that combines religion with history, with nationalism, with a messianic goal of trying to recreate the Russian Empire. He stated flatly that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century. And his goal, his goal is to reverse that great tragedy. Now, what happens if he can't do that? Well, then we're in trouble. Because then the headless bear becomes a cornered animal. And the worst thing you can go up against is a cornered animal. Because a cornered animal is irrational. It lashes out. It does whatever it can. It bluffs. It growls. It does everything it can to, to back off the enemy. Now, of course, the Russians have the overwhelming firepower. People thought it would be a massacre because of the fact they had overwhelming, mass, overwhelming force, overwhelming weaponry, open, overwhelming logistics, and, and what have you. However, now we know that it was in some sense a paper tiger, that the appearance of the Russian military was that it was invulnerable, that it would pulverize the enemy, and now we realize that that's not really true. Now, what's the worst case? Well, the best case scenario is that some kind of treaty can be signed, a ceasefire, some way in which to save face, some way in which to prevent World War III. That's the best case scenario. But now, let's talk about the worst case scenario. Vladimir Putin and his military and his spokespeople were pretty clear about this. If Russia fears an existential threat, they will use nuclear weapons. Now, of course, we're not talking about Russia facing an existential threat. We're talking about Vladimir Putin suffering an existential threat. Let's make that clear. The, the war is not with the Russian people. But let's say it does come to war. What are we going to do? Well, President Biden has made it clear that he is assembling what is called the Tiger Squads. The Tiger Squads are small committees that think the unthinkable. Their mission is to figure out realistic scenarios for CBR warfare, chemical, biological, and radiological warfare. Well, you must say to yourself, first of all, hey, wait a minute. 
I thought the great powers signed treaties to restrain the use of these weapons. Well, yes and no. It turns out that there are no treaties to restrain tactical nuclear weapons. All the arms control treaties that you hear about, the SALT talks and things like that, they rein in strategic nuclear weapons, nation-killing nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons that can go across the entire Earth in just 30 minutes, ICBMs that can destroy entire nations. Yes, there are treaties for them, but there are no treaties for tactical nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons that have a fraction of the power of the Hiroshima bomb or the Nagasaki bomb, but they are in fact nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons. And what about chemical warfare? Well, yes, there is the Chemical Warfare Convention. The Russians actually signed it in 1995. And in 2017, the Russians declared that they were 100% free of chemical weapons, that their entire stockpile was in fact destroyed. Well, who believes that? Almost nobody believes that the Russians carried out what they said, which was a complete elimination of their chemical warfare stockpile in the year 2017. Well, now, what about the United States? Yes, the United States also ratified the CWC, the Chemical Warfare Convention, but it did not, the U.S. did not eliminate all their weapons. They gave a timetable a timetable that ends in 2023. So in other words, the U.S. still has chemical weapons, but next year it has pledged, Scouts Honor, to get rid of these weapons. But the United States policy has always been strategic ambiguity. That is, you want to put the enemy off guard. Does the United States have or have not nuclear weapons? And, of course, chemical weapons and tactical weapons. Well, this is the question of ambiguity. Ambiguity is part of U.S. foreign policy. Keep the enemy guessing as to what we have. Well, so in other words, where are we? We're in a situation where the Russians have declared that they've given up all chemical weapons, but nobody believes that. And we have the United States that does possess nuclear weapons, but next year is supposed to get rid of them. But their policy has always been ambiguity. Well, let's talk about chemical warfare. First of all, there are roughly 70 types of chemicals that can be used in warfare, but they're grouped according to categories. First is the nerve gases that kill very rapidly because they destroy the nervous system or paralyze the nervous system, like VX gas and sarin gas, nerve agents. Then we have some of the oldest of the chemical weapons. These are blistering agents like mustard gas. Used on the battlefield, it overwhelms the enemy because it creates tremendous blisters on the skin, like mustard gas. Then there's poison gases, like chlorine or zyclone. Poison gases that simply kill the people that inhale them. And then there's a category of just tear gases that is not necessarily weapons that will kill, but will incapacitate the enemy. So what are the pros and cons of chemical warfare? First of all, on the battlefield, if you simply release these toxic gases 
it's a double-edged sword. If the wind is blowing in your favor, then yes, it'll paralyze the enemy. The enemy gets hysterical. The enemy then is psychologically inclined to desert and run away from this onslaught of chemicals. However, if the wind changes directions, then you are in big trouble. So the other possibility is to put poison gases in shells and simply fire them. That way you know that the gas is going to go where it's supposed to go. You can aim them and fire them, but it's limited. In other words, you can't use that much chemical weapons in simply one artillery shell. You have to use many artillery shells in order to create enough chaos by chemical warfare. And then, of course, there's biological warfare, where we have germs, germs like anthrax, germs that could be distributed to the enemy, but there are problems there. Germs are life forms. They take time. They take time to reproduce. They're not simply killing weapons like a nuclear bomb that destroys everything in sight within a matter of, of uh, fractions of a second. No, these are biological agents. They're deadly, but are they controllable? Watch out, because these bugs don't care who they infect. These bugs can be used against the enemy, but these bugs can also hit your own troops as well. And so, yes, there are biological weapons like anthrax, other kinds of weapons, but they are, they have a problem. They take time in order to spread. And if you don't watch out, your own troops can be infected by these uh, weapons as well. Well, then the question is, what happens if the Russians feel that there is a, quote, existential threat that threatens Russia itself? Well, first of all, there probably is no such thing. The danger for them is that the leadership, Vladimir Putin and the Russian leadership, think that they could be overthrown and then they may reach for tactical nuclear weapons. First of all, how serious is that scenario? Very serious. These tactical nuclear weapons, thousands of them exist. The Russians have thousands. We probably have hundreds to thousands of these tactical nuclear weapons, and they're not regulated. Plus, they are some of them are tunable. You can actually tune and vary the power of these weapons. And these weapons will have a fraction of the power of the Hiroshima bomb. So these Tiger squads are looking at scenarios where these weapons are actually being used. And according to interviews, what kinds of scenarios are they looking at? Well, one scenario is that the Russians drop a tactical nuclear weapon on Ukraine as a demonstration to show that they are rulers of the roost, they are serious, that you're next unless you capitulate. So that is a possibility of a nuclear weapon being used as a test. Another possibility is to, well, pulverize a city. That's been the basic strategy of the Russian bear. That's the strategy they use in Chechnya, in Syria, in the Crimea. Basically, unless you surrender, we pulverize you. Overwhelming firepower. Now, you may say to yourself, isn't that a war crime? Well, yeah, but who's going to hold Russia accountable when they have nuclear weapons? You see, that's the winning weapon. If you have nuclear weapons, then who's going to stop you? That's the reason why North Korea 
basically bled its own people dry in order to create an arsenal of nuclear weapons. And of course, Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi, well, they're in the history books, they did not have nuclear weapons. And look what happened to Saddam Hussein. Look what happened to Gaddafi. Well, the Iranians aren't stupid. They saw what happened to their next door neighbors, like what happened in, in Libya and what happened in Iraq. And that's why the Iranians want a nuclear weapon. Well, the Russians have it. And therefore, you have to treat warfare on a different scale, given the fact that your adversary has the power to basically unleash World War III. So what might these Tiger squads contemplate? They contemplate a weapon that may be dropped near a NATO nation, such that radioactive fallout then begins to be blown by the wind over NATO territory. And then the question is, can that be interpreted as an attack, given the fact that it's fallout from the dropping of a tactical nuclear weapon? Then there could be justification for invoking the NATO treaty. The NATO treaty says that a, an attack on one is an attack on all. So in other words, the slightest miscalculation, the slightest miscalculation by the Russian military could invoke the NATO treaty. And at that point, NATO is authorized to use whatever means necessary to repel the invading force. Well, Another scenario is an accident of some sort. You see, low-level commanders may be in charge of some of these nuclear weapons. If a low-level commander gets frightened and thinks that his life is in danger or that they're going to lose, well, he may panic, and then he may hit the button, and more tactical nuclear weapons are being used in the battlefield. And once that starts then it could very easily escalate to strategic nuclear weapons. Now, again, there's a huge difference between these two. Tactical nuclear weapons can be, in general, smaller than a Hiroshima or Nagasaki bomb in terms of its power. They are designed to be used on the battlefield. They can be shot through an artillery. You don't have to have airplanes. You don't have to have a, a gigantic squadron of planes to drop these bombs. No, they can be fired from an artillery shell. Then you have the strategic weapons. If there is a tactical nuclear exchange, then these Tiger squads are contemplating what happens if at that point somebody pushes the button. Now remember that these tactical nuclear weapons can be fired from an artillery shell, but a intercontinental ballistic missile, of course, is fired by an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of reaching any target on the planet Earth within about 30 minutes' time. Then you have the scenario of lose them or use them. That if you wait too long, then maybe, just maybe, the enemy has already launched a strategic strike, in which case you are radioactive dust in just a few more minutes. Can you take the chance? If you see a blimp on your radar screen, can you assume that it's a bird? Or do you have to assume that it's a nuclear bomb coming your way? And if you make a mistake, you could be radioactive dust within a matter of minutes.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. Once again, if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I have about five million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation: The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor Gregory Stock of the University of California at Los Angeles, where he's the director of the program on medicine, technology, and society, and he's the author of a very controversial book called "Redesigning Humans." That's right, "Redesigning Humans: Choosing Our Genes, Changing Our Future." In other words, we're not talking about something that's going to happen anytime soon. But perhaps 50 years, perhaps a hundred years into the future, who knows for sure, we may have the ability to tinker with our genetic heritage. And then the question is: Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing if every parent can begin to choose the characteristics of their children? What about the future of the human race? What about medicine? What about ethics? These are the questions we're going to be exploring with Dr. Gregory Stock of UCLA, author of the book. Redesigning humans. Okay, the first question for you, Doctor Stock, is: How did you first get interested as a youth in biology and medicine?、Uh, well, I've sort of been interested in. The issues of life for as long as I can remember, and I think the、uh, epiphany that I had being as a uh, uh, graduate student,、uh, just about to get my doctorate in、uh, molecular biology, was that suddenly I was walking on campus and realized that I didn't really know the difference between、uh, an oak tree and an elm tree. Uh, and I realized I was at too much of a molecular level, so I thought it would be、uh, worthwhile for me to step back a little bit and、uh, look at more systems biology. Okay. And why did you specifically get interested in the whole question of genes, genetic modification, and genetic enhancement? Well, I was、uh, developing some ideas related to sort of uh, uh, levels of complexity in life. And that there are multiple, very distinct levels of complexity. The the lowest being that of bacteria, which is just essentially a little bag of biochemicals and、uh, no internal structure or anything. And then animal cells or eukaryotes are a million times the volume. They have all sorts of compartments. They are much much more complex. And it turns out that the origins of some of those components were in fact bacteria themselves. Which came together symbiotically and then formed really、uh, complex、uh, organizational structures, and then this happened again with the formation of multicellular life. All of the、uh, complex multicellular organisms, the animals and plants that are are filling up the environment that we see、uh, 
that we can observe around us. And now there's yet another step that is occurring where, led by human activity and our fusion with telecommunication technologies and all sorts of things that are drawing us together as a, a very integrated sort of a superorganism, the implications of that are really profound for not just human society, which is actually uh, an organism and can be seen very clearly as that uh, if you look into it in detail. And that's the subject of a book I wrote called The, the Fusion of Humans and Machines into a Global Superorganism. And I was interested in what the biggest implication of that was. And things like space travel and such are, are some of the products of that uh, collaboration. But the most interesting for us, I think, is the way these technologies will then be turned back upon ourselves and reshape the, our own biology. And so that's how I really got interested in the sort of genomics and the various ways in which these uh, you know, extraordinarily precise and powerful technologies were uh, beginning to, be, to have the possibility of reshaping human life itself. Okay, and speaking about reshaping human life, some people get a little bit squeamish when they think about that. They remember what happened with the Nazis and eugenics. However, isn't it true that historically, humans have, in fact, been enhancing other species, like dogs? Haven't we been breeding dogs for thousands of years? And what about plants as well? Uh, yes, it's definite that there is not. Uh, this is not something... New. It's just that the tools that are being brought to bear upon biology are so much more sophisticated. So uh, I think that canine breeding is is, a, is an excellent example, and is actually going to serve as sort of a pilot project for our own self modification. In that here we're using the most kind of primitive tools of of selection and and breeding, and look at the diversity that exists in the canine realm. I mean, it's truly extraordinary. And so to think that when we're uh, sort of exerting control over our own reproductive uh, possibilities, essentially through in vitro fertilization, through uh, genetic screening, all of these sorts of things, that there won't be significant implications for us as a species, as individuals, as culture, as cultures, uh, I think is very much putting one's head in the sand just because of all these previous examples. Well, let's look at the pros and cons. Uh, the pro side would be that dogs are very plentiful and successful in North America, while Canis lupus, the gray wolf, is, is uh, near extinction in many areas. And so the dog benefited by genetic enhancement being close to humans. But dogs also have lots of genetic defects, uh, uh, genetic defects because of all the inbreeding that took place over thousands of years. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that there are... Uh uh, there are certainly there are inbreeding issues, especially with certain breeds. Uh, there are, I believe, that uh, most of uh, that many dogs are, have a longer life expectancy, certainly than uh, the gray wolf in the wild. But uh, yes, there will be consequences of that sort, and especially when you have the kind with sort of crude. Uh, the kinds of, of, of um, selective tools that one uses and, uh, in natural breeding, you're much more likely to get these sorts of issues because you have large clusters of genes that are exchanged and you have inbreeding problems and such. I would imagine that those will be 
uh, less significant when this occurs in humans uh, for several reasons. One is that the advances in medical technology are such that they mute some of the problems that might otherwise be significant. For example, the most obvious, or a very obvious example of that is uh, eyesight, where virtually everyone over the age of 40 uh, requires glasses, and we wouldn't be very functional without them. And yet we don't even look at it as a disability. And there are a variety of other kinds of uh, what would have been even fatal diseases that no longer are such. And in fact, that has had a huge impact in the uh, spread of various mutations that would otherwise be uh, very, very debilitating because we survive longer. We reach reproductive age when otherwise we might not have. Uh, so I see that as one reason that these are less likely, that they are unlikely to be things that we can't deal with. And another is that we're really understanding uh, human biology and life in general in a much more profound and nuanced way. And also look at our dinner table. Believe it or not, much of the foods we eat for dinner have been genetically enhanced by humans over thousands of years. But if you look at corn, even though corn was uh, domesticated by Native Americans, corn cannot exist without humans. The kernels don't fall off uh, without human intervention. Uh, therefore, corn is very plentiful, very shiny, uh, very tasteful. But it is totally dependent upon humans for reproduction. Without humans, uh, corn cannot exist. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are, are several in that. First of all, virtually all of the foods that we eat are the product of uh, human breeding in one way or another. So the idea that there are natural foods is uh, just uh, demonstrates an ignorance of the whole process by which all of the grains and staples that we um, eat or how they evolved. I mean, a potato was a little uh, uh, thing the size of a pea, for example, and the same thing, as you mentioned, with corn. Uh, the second is that I agree that we're likely uh, not to be able to survive in, a hu in, in an environment that it does not have technology. And in fact, that's already the case, not just because of our biology, but look at our population. We couldn't support the human population without... Uh, the kinds of uh, high-technology agriculture and such that we have. And so the population is way beyond the level that it could uh, uh, we could live uh, in a subsistence kind of a lifestyle. Many individuals who really give birth to children, and they wouldn't be able to do that outside of a hospital. I mean, you, you have all sorts of interventions which those interventions make it more likely that uh, such problems will be more significant, not less, in the future. So I think that we are definitely uh, increasingly adapted to a high-technology, human-centered sort of an environment, and the idea that we're going to go back in some way or would even have the possibility of doing that, I think, is uh, there is no, no real possibility that that could occur. Okay, so we talked about the past where everything, including our dinner table, uh, dogs, cats, uh, horses, sheep, all of them have been tinkered with uh, and enhanced to some degree by human intervention. Now let's talk about today. Uh, we see science fiction movies where uh, life forms can be manipulated at will, but isn't it true that gene therapy, the simplest example of just fixing a broken gene, that that's really in its infancy 
and that there's really only one disease that can be so-called cured using gene therapy, and that's called uh, the bubble boy syndrome, or SCIDS. So aren't we at the beginning of this technology? Uh, Very much at the beginning. I would differ uh, sharply, though, with your assessment that that is the simplest of of the sort of interventions that one can think of. It's actually probably the most difficult. And the reason for that is that you, if you're going to try and do genetic interventions, you have to find a mechanism for putting in place a, uh, a significant segment of DNA uh, and the control mechanisms to determine when that would be turned off appro- on and off appropriately, and then get them into individual cells in an already existing body. That's a very, very difficult and challenging process, and, and an unnatural one in many ways, in the sense that the the much easier and simpler way to do that would be to uh, select or alter the genes that are in the first cell of the human embryo, and then they would be copied into every cell in the human body uh, along with, uh, with structures that would turn them on and off, orchestrate their activity uh, at the appropriate times and places. And that's kind of the way our genetics works naturally, in that we have every cell in the body has the same genes. It's just that different clusters of them are turned on in, say, bone than in uh, skin or in neural tissue. And so these are the kinds of things that are possible and are, are much, much simpler than genetic interventions, which uh, I think uh, Jim Watson said that if you, if you waited to do germline intervention, which are those that are to embryos and uh, single cells, that if you waited for somatic engineering, the kinds of uh, genetic interventions that are done today to be successful, you'd wait until uh, the sun froze over. Okay. Well, if you are Jewish, you have to worry about Tay-Sachs. If you are uh, Caucasian, you have to worry about cystic fibrosis. And in fact, in Brooklyn, there's even a group of um, Orthodox Jews who get screened and if the embryos, uh, via uh, implantation, uh, if the embryos carry um, the, the bad gene, you can reject them. And in that way, they hope to literally eliminate that gene from that population. So what are, the, what are some other ways in which people today can actually begin to tinker with the genetics of their children? Well, you mentioned it right there with actually... Uh uh, creating a number of embryos during the process of in vitro fertilization, where you take a, a, an egg and a sperm and uh, fertilize them in a petri dish, allow them to come together in a petri dish, and then you wait until they grow up to, say, the six or eight cell stage. You remove one of the cells, which isn't damaging to the embryo, and then you run a genetic test on that cell, and depending on the results, you decide whether to use or discard that embryo. That's done to avoid cystic fibrosis, to avoid Tay-Sachs. In fact, in the Jewish community, there are uh, people have genetic tests and use that as uh, to avoid marriages that would likely lead to uh, children with such problems, and that's a common thing as well. So the idea of genetic screening is the easiest way that you could uh, exploit the possibilities of these new technologies, because there you're not actually altering or changing, you're just reading out the genetic code, which is something that we can already do, although we'll be able to do it much more easily and rapidly and in more sophisticated fashions, and then making a decision based on that. So there is 
no risk involved, essentially, or very, very limited risks involved. And that, I think, is going to be the first application that is widespread, and that will happen relatively quickly. Okay, now let's look at maybe a 20-year timeline, and then we'll look into the next 100, 200 years, which, of course, borders on science fiction. Mm -hmm. But let's take a look at a 20-year timeline. What kinds of therapies, what kinds of procedures are going to be available within that time frame, a 20-year time frame? So in a 20-year time frame, I think there will be some sort of niche technologies which gain a lot of publicity today but aren't really very interesting, things like human cloning and such, which I think, even if broadly available, would only be used by very small numbers of people. The kinds of genetic engineering technologies, which I've discussed at length, uh, where you'd actually go in and alter chromosomes and add clusters of genes and such, uh, those almost certainly will not be used other than possibly in animals, uh, and they're already being used a little bit in animals uh, within that time frame. The kinds of things that will be dramatically more sophisticated and will be widely available within a 20-year time frame will be the genetic screening technology that we just discussed. And there, one will be not only screening for genetic diseases, which uh, is already done today for a few genetic diseases, it'll be done much more broadly and in a much more nuanced fashion, but I believe that there will be uh, choices being made based on uh, matters of temperament and personality and uh, predispositions that involve risk for certain, uh, for manic depression or other kinds of disorders that, uh, you know, are only on the borderline viewed as diseases. And so there will be um, basically parents, prospective parents, will be exerting choices over the genetic makeup of their children based on their individual preferences and uh, wants. Okay, let's talk about that now, because let's look at a 20-plus year horizon, 20-50 year horizon, let's say, when some of the genes for attractiveness are isolated. Uh, there was a blip in the media the other day stating that uh, shoppers uh, spend more time taking care of their attractive children uh, than they do with their unattractive children. And parents, of course, spend thousands of dollars on violin lessons for their children and SAT lessons to enhance their children to get into college to increase their reproductive success. But wouldn't parents therefore be hardwired not just to give violin lessons, but to actually make the children more attractive? Well, uh, almost certainly to pick certain traits. I think one gets into... Uh, surprising choices that people would make that uh, some of us would not consider to be enhancement, but would be so in the eyes of the parents. And what I'm referring to is, for example, that deaf parents have already, uh, I've spoken to deaf parents who have said, they're interacted with deaf parents who have said that they would use such technology to ensure that their children, not that their children were hearing, but that they were deaf so that they could fit better into the environment that they could, uh, into the, the deaf culture, that they would be able to interact more with them as, as parents. So the choices that people make are very interesting. Some people would like to enhance uh, one's IQ and intelligence. Another would be interested in aspects of physicality or in appearance. And I think there will be very, very, very diverse choices that are being made. But yes, parents will definitely want to make those choices and, in fact, will make those choices. And, in fact, uh, if you just found out that the Joneses next door had their kid genetically enhanced 
and your kid, who is not enhanced, has to compete against the Joneses' kid. Uh, won't you, therefore, make a beeline to the nearest genetic enhancer uh, so that your kid is competitive against your uh, next-door neighbor's kid? Yeah, maybe. It's sort of interesting, though, because the difficulty of you applying the technology will be directly proportional to the amount of enhancement you, that one exerts. So to actually create, for instance, super children in one way or another, no matter what the trait is, will be very complex and very slow in coming, whereas the uh, possibility of improving a some vector of performance from below average to average or average to slightly above average will be much, much easier. So there'll tend to be a leveling that will occur when these technologies are applied. I think of it as like giving parents the ability to create uh, a virtual projection of some of the aspects of that would likely be manifested in future children, and then to make choices among those virtual siblings that they would uh, that would be represented by embryos. So. Yes, it could create significant enhancements in various dimensions uh, and do it very, very rapidly if, in fact, for example, what we know about the uh, genetic basis for IQ, which is uh, not insignificant at all, certainly probably over, over 50% from uh, twin studies, uh, identical twins reared together and reared apart, a whole variety of studies in that realm. If, if you could identify the many genes that are involved in that and make choices based on them, uh, you would, within a single generation, parents would probably increase the IQ of their kids by perhaps 20 points when they, uh, if that was what really interested them. So that's a huge step in a very short period of time. And I think that there would be movement in many, many different directions so that there would sort of be a radiation of human form. Okay, well, let's take these one at a time because you raise a whole bunch of things. Uh, strength. Uh, just recently, scientists have been studying a gene which makes a mouse muscle-bound. Uh, the mouse has tremendous muscles. Uh, they call that mouse a mighty mouse in the media. And that gene or a counterpart of that has been found in children now, human children. And the question is, what does it mean to be an Olympic uh, sportsman or sportswoman? What does it mean to be a, a Yankee home run batter? if it's all just a question of genetic, enhan genetic enhancement? Well, I think it's, a, it's going to be uh, a real interplay of many, many factors, of which genetics will be a very, very important one and a requirement, essentially. That, I mean, if you, you know relatively early on today whether you have the genes, whether you have the, the physique, that you're going to be competitive at a world-class level, that you even have the hope of being competitive, in various sports, and you'd have to combine with that an incredible to drive and an environment that nurtured that. Uh, I would say that if you had uh, 50 clones of Michael Jordan, that not all of them would be superstars, uh, that there would be other factors that would intervene to avoid those, you know, to interfere with that or to prevent that in one way or another. But, uh, yeah, so what does it mean to be a superstar? Well, today, it used to be that there were amateur athletes, and now today, for somebody to perform at a world-class status, uh, in a sort of a world-class status, you have to basically be devoted to a sport from a very, very early age and make it uh, your career. 
and that certainly wasn't the case. So the sense of what it takes to be a professional at a world-class level will uh, just continue to be refined. And I suspect that you may eventually reach the point where it's like having a race car, where you know there's a whole team, uh, including physicians and others, that are the support uh, sort of group for any world-class athlete. Okay, well, we have uh, numerous steroid scandals, and uh, we believe in a meritocracy that you should work at being a great athlete, not simply take a steroid and hit the ball out of the ballpark. And yet here we're talking about something even greater than steroids, actually literally changing the genetic structure of your muscle and uh, bones, right? So won't that also create a scandal? Well, I think it, it... It will create a change in the way people look at these things because as it is right now there are the idea that there is going to be sort of a natural uh, Olympics in some way or that there are sports where people do not use various aids of one sort or another uh, you know, that's really as we've seen in baseball that's really not the case and the idea that we're going to be able to enforce those things is very unlikely as well because the monetary rewards are too significant for success. And so it's just a constant battle between those who are trying to uh, enhance in one way or another through genetic, through uh, drugs, through all sorts of things, and those who are trying to discover those. And actually, there are certain incentives for the, um, the sports organizations to see increased performance. It'll be interesting to see what will happen to the perceptions of the game if, in fact, performance settles back and isn't as strong as when, uh, you know, new home run records were being set. Uh, so I think that as we move ahead, that it's going to become increasingly accepted that we manipulate our bodies in a variety of ways using interventions. What we will want, not want to see is ways in which these are dangerous interventions. But I would like to say, what are you going to do if, in fact, there is something that you could take that would increase performance or increase one's memory or increase any aspect of one's functioning and, in fact, is not dangerous, where there are no side effects that are adverse? It's sort of a recreational drug of sorts, but one without the side effects of many of the ones today. Are we ourselves not going to want to take those? I mean, remember, we are... We take things to put ourselves to sleep, to wake ourselves up, to <laughs> uh, kill pain, to, you know, we intervene in all sorts of ways with legal pharmaceuticals. So the line between uh, what is a pharmaceutical and what is an illicit drug is going to be an, uh, an increasingly arbitrary one, and those discussions will seem a little bit surreal as we move forward. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the second half of Exploration. Our special guest today has been Professor Gregory Stock of UCLA, author of a controversial book called Redesigning Humans. And then the question is, what about some of the latest developments in gene therapy and gene manipulation? Well, recently, the Nobel Prize was given to two women pioneers in this area, where they discovered something called CRISPR technology. It's a powerful technology that allows you to cut and paste genes just like you would with a word processor. It was discovered as follows. It turns out that humans are not the only organisms affected by viruses. Bacteria, 
single-celled organisms are also affected by viruses, and they have a mechanism by which to cut and paste the genome of a virus so it becomes harmless. So in other words, single-celled organisms have their own defense mechanism against viruses. They genetically cut up the genome. Well, these scientists were able to duplicate that mechanism to create a word processor for our genome. But of course, there's a danger there between somatic gene therapy and germline gene therapy. Somatic gene therapy simply cures the broken genes of one individual and that's it. So then you, in principle, you could cure sickle cell anemia or Tay-Sachs. Germline gene therapy is different. But you, then you're affecting the entire germline of a person, including all their descendants forever. And so there are ethical considerations. The question is, how far should we push this powerful technology? Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. If you want to know more about my radio show, then go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org, and we have 5 million fans on Facebook. So stay tuned every week when we discuss science and its impact on society. Good day. <laughs>